If you reach for your Bibles for this morning's scripture reading and turn with me to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we'll be in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. If you're in need of a Bible, there should be a few Bible located in front of you. You can find today's scripture reading on page 10. Genesis chapter 11 will be starting in verse 27 and we'll be reading through 12, chapter 12, verse 3. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Cana. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Father, Lord, we come this morning. Father, thank you that you are above all and through all. All is done. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness through the years, Lord, with your promise here that we just read, Lord. Open our hearts, open our minds, that we would focus on you today through your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 11, first part of chapter 12. Is that's where we will be. And I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as we begin a a brand new series today on the life of Abraham here in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 11, and it will cover all the way through the beginning of Genesis 25. In fact, over the next few months, we will explore two major themes that we will see over and over again here through the life of Abraham, and that is the theme of the God of promise, and then the theme of a life of faith. So God of promise, life of faith. God of promise, life of faith. And that's what we will see over and over again. Abraham is one of the most important men in all of history. And although he lived uh, some 4,000 years ago, he is still revered by the majority of the world even today. In fact, he's revered as, as the father of faith. In fact, it's, we have three world religions, Judaism, Islam, and even Christianity, all point to this one figure in the Bible, Abraham, as the founder of their faith. And so biblically speaking, Abraham, he's held up as the father of faith. Historically, Abraham is the father of the, the Jewish and Arab peoples through his sons Isaac and Ishmael. And spiritually, Abraham is the father of all Christians who placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the, the promised seed of Abraham who would redeem the world through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so the importance of Abraham, listen, it cannot be overemphasized. Abraham's one of the most prominent men in all of God's word, all the scripture. In fact, he is mentioned, his name is mentioned uh, over 300 times in both the Old Testament and New Testament. He's even called the friend of God three different times. Abraham is a man whose life actually changed the course of world history when God, a promise, called him, and Abraham responded by faith to God's call. And so even 4,000 years later, this man and his life is still very practical for our lives. In fact, it's still very relevant for us here today. And so here's what we're going to see. Here's kind of the big idea, the big purpose or goal, whatever you want to call it, 
as we go through the life of Abraham. I want to state it up front here. Abraham is going to show us what it looks like to live a life of faith in response to the God of promise. Abraham is the quintessential role model of faith. Again and again and again, the New Testament actually holds him up as an example of how God works in the life of believing, obedient people to fulfill his promises of grace. Abraham is is the chief among all the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, when the writer wanted to explain what the life of faith looks like, he gave more space, more time to Abraham than to anyone else, letting us know that the life of faith is, is worthwhile. In fact, a life of faith is what pleases our God. Charles Swindoll writes in his book on Abraham, while each person's faith journey is unique, Abraham blazed a trail for the rest of us. His faith journey tells us about our own. Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon on Abraham, Abraham, the man of faith, is a type of all believing people. And the narrative of his life, if rightly considered, is the mirror of the history of all the saints of God. In other words, the life of Abraham is a mirror in which we, can, we see our own lives. We see in Abraham's life what it looks like to live a life of faith in response to the God of promise. And yet, as we will see throughout this series, when when you look at Abraham's life, we also see that his times of, of great faith is balanced, in fact, even offset by times of great doubt times of disobedience, and even times of failure in his life. And so for many years, Abraham actually had very little faith, and he failed miserably when God tested him. In fact, right after what Dan Dan just read for us here in chapter 12, we immediately see that Abraham fails his very first test. And so here's a man of faith, but he's a man of failure, and yet God is faithful to his promises. And so that is the more important reason to study the life of Abraham. It's because what we see in his life is that we also see the God of promise. In Abraham's life, we see something about our God. We see God's character, and we see God's promises that are revealed to us through Abraham's life. And so by looking at his life, we actually get a glimpse of our God. We begin to see the heart of God for Abraham's family, but we also see God's heart for all the families of the world in the nations of the world. We begin to better understand that this God of promise, who is our God as well, who not only called Abraham, but he calls us, and we begin to learn about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God to his promises. And so as we see before us Throughout this series, the life of Abraham. More importantly, we're going to see this God of promise of ours. And we learn through all of this what it means for us here today to live a life of faith in response to the God of promise. Now, we need to pause here for a moment. And we need to ask a question. In fact, answer the question we're going to ask. And that is, well, how does the life of Abraham fit within the context of the book of Genesis? And for that matter, even within the the whole storyline of the Bible. And so here's what I want you to know about this. In context of Genesis, the life of Abraham, beginning here in Genesis 12, is pivotal in God's plan of salvation among all the peoples of the world. Genesis 12 is the turning point in God's plan to save a people for himself from every tongue, every tribe, every nation through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. Now, Genesis is known as the book of beginnings, and Genesis is probably, if not, the most important book of the Old Testament. In fact, I I would say to you as your pastor, if you can only read three books in all of God's word, 
Here's the three books I would encourage you to read. Read Genesis in the Old Testament. Read the book of Romans in the New Testament. And then read any of the four Gospels. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are about the life of Christ. And so if you can read only three books of the Bible, those would be the three books of the Bible I would encourage you to read. Genesis is the most important book in the Old Testament because it's the foundational story of the Bible revealing to us the eternal story of God and his plan of salvation for all the world. And chapter 12 here is the pivotal passage. In fact, this chapter has been referred to as the single most important passage in all the Bible. And so everything that that follows Genesis 12 here, that is everything throughout the Old Testament, including even the coming of Christ, the establishment of the church, the the promise of Christ's return, the millennial kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, all of it flows from God's promise to Abraham here in Genesis 12. So the book of Genesis can actually be structured by tracing four great events as well as four great people. The four great events are laid out in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11. And those four great events are this. It's the creation. You know the story of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. It's the fall. We, we term it that way because of Adam and Eve and their sin in the Garden of Eden. Number three, the third great event is the flood that destroyed humanity except for Noah and his family. And then the last great event is is the rebellion of the nations at the Tower of Babel right here in Genesis 11 that precedes Genesis 12 here. And the four great people complete the book of Genesis, and that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so we might think of Genesis like this. Genesis 1 through 11 is like this panoramic view or this panoramic picture of 2,000 years of history tracking those four great events. And then starting here in Genesis 12, it's like a zoom lens is now attached to the camera, zooming in on one man and his descendants. That is Abraham. Now, to fully understand, to, to fully appreciate the significance of what we're going to look at this morning here in Genesis 12 of God's plan of salvation, you would really need to fully understand the the depraved, ruined condition of humanity at the very end here of Genesis 11. The construction project to build the Tower of Babel may not seem terribly wicked to us. It may not seem like that big a deal to us. But God recognized it for what it was. What humanity did here at the end of Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, let me tell you, it was outright rebellion against God's rule and reign for humanity. At Babel, humanity sank far into sin and rebellion and wickedness when they tried to raise themselves up to heaven to confront God and even overthrow his rule. In fact, they they sought to make a name for themselves instead of worshiping the name of God. And so as a result of their wickedness and their, their evil and their sin, God confused their language and he scattered them across the face of the earth. And the question then becomes, how could the story of human history possibly overcome such a horrific evil setback. Listen, God was was justified in his holy righteousness to to confuse their language and to scatter them across the world. But God would also be justified to destroy the human race altogether in some catastrophic judgment like he did in the flood. Listen, God has already given mankind from Genesis 1 to 11, he's already given mankind three opportunities to obey him and worship him, and yet humanity is bent. They are hell-bent on rejecting God and his rule. And so what will God do now? How does God respond to this? Well, will he destroy humanity or abandon humanity, or, or will God keep his promise to rescue humanity from its sin? And if so, how will God do that? Well, in his mercy, in his grace, God will not 
forsake the world altogether. Rather, God will raise up one man, Abraham, through whom he will now bless all the peoples of the world, including us here this morning. So here's what I want to impress upon you. When you come to Genesis 12, when you open your Bibles and and you read Genesis 1, chapters 2 and 3, and you read Genesis 11, and you come to this first section of Genesis 12, listen, you ought to jump out of your seat wherever you are, and you ought to shout to hallelujah and just praise God at that moment. You ought to be just like, wow, woo! Because here's the deal. Many of you, if not all of you, this not tonight at 5.30, hopefully around 7, we're going to be jumping up and down and shouting that the Chiefs win or Mahomes threw a pass or we're going to be high-fiving our friends and our family and, and our Super Bowl parties and we're going to be shouting about that. Listen, this is even more important. This is something greater to shout about when you come to Genesis 12 because God is keeping his promises So when you come to Genesis 12, you are shouting, thank you, Lord. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for not destroying us. You are keeping your promises. You are acting on your plan of salvation for me, for humanity. A promise that was first given right after Adam and Eve sinned in the fall in the Garden of Eden. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we see a glimpse of that promise when God dispels the curses and on Satan, the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, that is Jesus Christ, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is a promise and God's acting on it here in Genesis 12. We see another glimpse of this promise hinted at after the flood here in Genesis 9, 26 and 27 where it says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And it's through the line of Shem that we have Abraham. And it's through the line of Abraham that we have the promised seed of Jesus Christ. And so rather than final judgment on the world, which we all deserve, here's what we see. We see God loving mankind, even though at this point in human history, nobody's loving him back. And what we see here in the life of Abraham is that the God of promise is fulfilling his plan of salvation for all the world. So praise God. Shout hallelujah when you read Genesis 12 here. Genesis 11 is filled with mankind speaking rebellion to each other. But Genesis 12 begins with God speaking redemption to one man. And it makes all the difference in the world. And it makes a difference in my life and in your life for all eternity. So let's see this God who calls us and makes promises to us. Number one, hear the God who calls you to follow him. Now we meet Abraham for the first time at the end of Genesis 11. He was actually born, his name Abram, and that name, Abram, means uh, exalted father. Uh, He was 99 years old, though, when God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many. We'll talk about that later on when God changed his name to Abraham. Uh, But I want us, for clarity's sake, to understand that as we go through this series, we're going to call him by the name of Abraham. So we're not going to go back and forth between Abram and Abraham because I'll get tongue-tied up here and you guys will just laugh at me. Uh, So we're going to use the name Abraham throughout this series, but understand he starts out as Abram. And you see his background here at the end of Genesis 11. Now, when you dig into the history and the culture in which Abraham lived, These verses here at the end of Genesis 11 show us that before Abraham was ever this man of faith, he was a pagan idol worshiper. Listen, God did not call Abraham because somehow he stood out from the world's wickedness. Rather, everything we know of Abraham here at the end of Genesis 11 tells us that this guy is absolutely no different than the rest of mankind who worship false gods. 
who rebelled against God at the Tower of Babel. And yet God called Abraham to follow him, just as God calls us here today to follow him. So notice the God who calls. God calls us out of darkness of sin, just like he did Abraham. We learn that Abraham's family lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. In fact, that city is mentioned twice here at the end of Genesis 11. And Ur was located in southern Mesopotamia, which is today southern Iraq. In fact, historians tell us Ur was one of the greatest commercial cities of the ancient world with over 250,000 people living there at the time of Abraham. Ur was one of the most advanced cities of the ancient world. It had a university. It had a large library. In fact, that city and, and the advanced civilization there is specialized in astronomy and mathematics. But there's something else that is unique about Ur of the Chaldeans that stands out. It was also a center of idolatry and pagan worship. In fact, when archaeologists unearthed this city, the Ur of Chaldeans, in the 1920s and 30s, they discovered evidence of moon worship that took place in this city. In fact, they found a temple that was built up and it was, it was topped off with a ziggurat for worshiping the moon god called Nana. And so as a moon worshiper, we might imagine Abraham would have stood atop the ziggurat's stargazing platform on night watches and offered his worship to a moon god called Nana. In fact, if you go over to Joshua, listen to what Joshua says about Abraham in Joshua 24, 2 and 3. And Joshua said to all the people, that is the people, the Israelites, the children of God, which have now are the descendants of Abraham, and he says this to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And so understand something here. Abraham came from a pagan family. And there was no doubt that he was an idol worshiper himself when God called him out of the darkness of sin, just as he still does every single person who comes to faith in Christ today. Second of all, we learn that God calls us by his sovereign grace. You see, why did God call Abraham? Defies logic. Makes no sense. Think about it. He's a pagan moon worshiper living in a pagan culture. And there's not the slightest hint in this passage here at the end of Genesis 11 that at this time in his life, Abraham was seeking God. As far as we know, Abraham is not looking for the one true living God. And yet God was looking for him. And his whole life changed when God found him and called him. Understand something here. God sought Abraham in a pagan culture and called Abraham out of all the pagan people in the world at this time in human history. And so why Abraham? Why not his father Terah? Why not his brother Nahor? I mean, did Abraham turn from his moon worship of his family to worship the one true living God? Did Abraham somehow make himself worthy of God's mercy for God to call him, to pick him. And the answer is far from it. No. Charles Swindoll, if I can quote him again, Charles Swindoll writes a book on the life of Abraham. Quoting from that book, he says, the Lord called Abraham for reasons known only in heaven. Abraham did nothing to earn or deserve God's favor. Nevertheless, the Lord appeared to this ignorant, sinful, superstitious idol worshiper and said, leave your country, your relatives, and your father's family and go to a land that I will show you. So understand here from the outset, Abraham is is not an example of how God blesses righteous people. 
Rather, Abraham, he is an example of how God extends his grace to sinners like us. God called Abraham not because of Abraham, but simply because of his grace. God revealed his glory not by honoring a righteous man, but by calling and transforming and blessing a pagan moon worshiper. Listen, Abraham was never this bright shining light who somehow attracted God's attention and favor on the basis of his own righteousness. Rather, Abraham lived in the world pursuing the religious values of the world and even the religions of the world when God called him by his sovereign grace. And so here is the point, God's blessing of salvation, which most of you have participated in and are partaking of even now. You have trusted Jesus Christ in saving faith. In the blessings that we receive from that, the blessings of salvation, listen, it never depends on human merit or works. So do not think in your minds when you read the life of Abraham that God somehow looked down from heaven and said, oh, there's Abraham. There's a good person that stands out from all the wickedness of humanity. I think I'll save him. That is not how it began. Rather, Abraham was an idol worshiper, and God simply called him and saved him simply because of his sovereign grace. Listen, God doesn't save anyone because they deserve it, including you and I here this morning. And while that might be a blow to our sinful pride, it's actually very, very good news for us. It means you cannot do anything to qualify by yourself for God's salvation. It means it's completely dependent upon the mercy of God and the grace of God and the atoning work of Jesus Christ with his life, death, and resurrection. Hallelujah. And then notice, God calls us through his word. He does it through his word. It's by grace, but it's through his word. Abraham lived in the darkness of sin as a pagan moon worshiper until God intervened in his life and called him through his spoken word. We are told right at the beginning of Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, The Lord said to Abraham, listen, we're not told how God spoke to Abraham. All we know is that God called Abraham through his spoken word. Derek Kinder, who is an author of a commentary on the book of Genesis, he writes this. The history of redemption, like that of creation, begins with God speaking. You go back to Genesis 1, and there God speaks into the formlessness and the void of the heavens and the earth when he says in verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. And in the same way, God speaks into the chaos of our hearts. He speaks into the the darkness of our lives, and he brings the, the light of his truth, the light of his grace and mercy, and he does it through his word. That doesn't mean God speaks to us like he did to Abraham audibly. We have the revealed word of God now. We have the written word of God now. Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so again, the way that we have been saved, the way that anybody is saved even today is through hearing the word of God. The word coming to us the word speaking to us, the word confronting us, the word convicting us, and the word regenerating us and transforming us. We hear the gospel, and then we respond to the gospel, and we do so by faith. And all of this, all of that is a work of God's grace in our lives, just as it was in Abraham's life. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, if you've been born again, you've been transformed, you ought to be humble that God saw fit in his grace to save you. And yet, 
we ought to walk in this life with the confidence because we have a God who made promises. Therefore, let us respond with a life of faith. So the first lesson we see here is to hear the word of God, to heed the word of God, the God who calls you to follow him. The second lesson is trust the God who promises to bless you. Trust the God who promises to bless you. Now, God's call of Abraham included both a command and promises. And that command and those promises required Abraham's obedience and trust in God. So look at the God who promises. First of all, Abraham was commanded to forsake all and follow God by faith. We see this in the very first verse of chapter 12 here in Genesis. Look at it with me. Notice God's command in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So immediately we see these are three concentric circles moving into the most intimate connections in all that was dear to Abraham. God commanded Abraham to leave his homeland. Listen, that's difficult. He commanded Abraham to leave his relatives. That's more difficult. He then commanded Abraham to leave his father's household. And when you think household, think inheritance, which is most difficult to do. And not just to leave those three things, but then to go to a land that God will show him, and that is an act of faith. And so understand what God's asking Abraham to do. In fact, he's not asking, he's commanding. He's telling Abraham, leave your identity and your security and go to a land that I will show you. Now, if ever Abraham could have used Zillow, it was right here, right now. God, can I at least look at some pics before I go? Just give me some pics of the land that you're going to show me. Listen, it's one thing to, to zoom in and buy a house without seeing it in person, but God says nothing. It's interesting. He says nothing about the land that he's going to show him. God just says to him, I want you to go, and I'll show you where later. In fact, Calvin says that this, this vagueness forced Abraham to trust God's word even more. In fact, Calvin even goes on and he comments that God basically said in effect, I command you to go forth with, with closed eyes and forbid you to inquire where I'm about to lead you until having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. God's call here to Abraham, it was void of all the details that we think we need before we can act. All the details that we want so desperately in our lives. Abraham had none of those kind of details. In fact, this call required Abraham to obey the bare word of God, or in the words of Calvin, the naked word of God, because it was void of the details. All he had was the word of God spoken to him. In fact, Hebrews 11.8 makes it clear that Abraham obeyed. He did this by faith. He went out not knowing where he was going. And that illustrates the central truth about the life of faith that you and I are called to this morning. You rarely see the big picture in advance. God rarely gives us the details it shows us a week ahead, a month ahead, a year down the road. He rarely gives us the big picture in advance. And yet, when God calls, the only proper response is to trust and obey and go. And although Abraham didn't know where he was going, he did know who he was going with. The God of promise. And when God calls you to follow him, he always supplies the grace that we need to trust and obey and go. Which brings us to the second observation here. Abraham was promised great blessings in order that he might be a great blessing. Central to the promises that we read here in verses 1 through 3 
the promises that God made to Abraham is this idea of blessing. In fact, as we read these three verses here, you might have noticed that that word blessing or the form of the word blessing occurs several different times in these three verses. In fact, it occurs five different times in these three verses. And the reason that this is so amazing is because in judgment of sin, God had pronounced curses in the first 11 chapters on humanity. Guess how many times? Five times. And now God will use these blessings promised to Abraham to begin to counter the curses that were previously made. And so all of these blessings, also notice this, are are just full of divine assertion as well. As God says over and over and over again in these three verses, I will, I will, I will. God is saying this to Abraham, I will do this, I will, I will. Abraham is the recipient of them. And so notice the promise of blessings God made. Look at them with me again, beginning in verse 2. And God says to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that... Now, that's a purpose clause there. In fact, I'm going to interpret that purpose clause. It's almost the first command is go, and now we see this purpose clause. It's almost in the form of a command or an imperative as well. So you see this, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you a great name, so that, Abraham, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, so here's some observations with all this. God's promise of blessings are presented here to Abraham in a form, we might call it this way, in a form of chain reactions. In other words, obedience to God leads to a chain reaction of God's blessings. There's this initial command to to go, followed by three promises. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And those promises then lead into and enable the second command so that you will be a blessing, Abraham, which is then followed by three more promises. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abraham's obedience to the first command would start this chain reaction in which God would bless him so that he would fulfill the second command to be a blessing, which would result in God's blessing of the world. So God's making all these blessings. Let me tell you, God's going to ensure that all these blessings happen as well. In fact, later on in Genesis 15, God will actually make a covenant with Abraham, an unconditional covenant that doesn't depend on Abraham. But that we're not there yet. We're getting a glimpse of what God's going to do here. And what we see are, are blessings pronounced upon Abraham. And we, we might divide these blessings in two different ways. You see personal blessings for Abraham, and then you see global or universal blessings through Abraham. First, God promised personal blessings for Abraham, and those blessings, listen to me, they are anchored in the promise of land, which is critically important. Because the land, think about this, God's telling Abraham, I want you to leave your land and go to a new land. Land that Abraham has no clue about, but a land I'm going to show you. And the reason these promises are tied to land, think about land. Land's something that's tangible, is it not? It's got boundaries. In fact, God's going to mark out the boundaries of the land in Genesis 15. Here in Genesis 12, Abraham's going to leave. He's going to part. He's going to go land, and he's going to circle through the land. He's going to see the land with his own eyes. And so the land is tangible, it it has boundaries, it's something that we know and see, and these promises of the blessings here are anchored in the land, and in a sense, Abraham's life is all about this land that God said he would give to Abraham and his descendants, and it was in this land's particular that God would reveal his glory through Israel, and in turn, they were now supposed to reach out from this land to all the nations of the world, and one day Jesus Christ would, guess what, be born in this land, he would live in this land, he would die in this land, and he is someday returning to this land. 
And because of this, the land would be the source of great blessing to all the nations of the world. And yes, it is also a source of great conflict to nations who oppose God and oppose Israel. We see this even today. So the land is the place where God will show Abraham and where God will make Abraham into this great nation of people and where God will provide Abraham, listen, with his protection. And oftentimes that protection includes the presence of God, which is why later on you have the temple. Before that, it was a tent, a meeting for Moses in the presence of God dwelt with his people in this land. And so you have personal blessings that are for specifically Abraham, but out of those blessings come global blessings through the life of Abraham that are ultimately fulfilled in his seed, Jesus Christ. Abraham's call ends with this this soaring promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed, which is God's plan of salvation among all peoples. And so it's from Abraham's seed that Jesus came, and his death and resurrection blesses anyone who believes in him. In fact, it's interesting what Paul says about this. You go to Galatians, there in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Listen, this is why we shout in praise when we come to Genesis 12. This is why. The God of promise is acting on his plan of salvation for all the peoples of the world, and that's us. That includes you and me. We are in on this promise, this blessing. And while these promises anticipate the formal covenant that God will make with Abraham in Genesis 15, right now, God only gives Abraham his word. Nevertheless, God calls Abraham not only to to believe these promises, but also to risk his fortunes, risk his family, risk his future to follow the call that he receives from God, which brings us to the third observation. Abraham faced three huge obstacles at this point in his life that would test his faith in God. Notice where Abraham is right now when God calls him. Abraham was still in the wrong land. Abraham's family and we'll look at this even more a little bit next week, stop short of the land of Canaan. And instead, where do they settle? Outside of Canaan, still in southern Mesopotamia, in the land of Haran, the city of Haran, which is still in the land of the Chaldeans. This is why God said to Abraham in in Genesis 12, verse 1, Get out of your country, far from your kindred and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. So Abraham is called out of the land of the Chaldeans and called to go into the land of Canaan. In other words, God called him out of a pagan land and called him to go to the promised land. And this move would shape and test his faith in God. In fact, he fails the first test immediately. We'll look at it next week or in two weeks. And then notice the second obstacle. Abraham's wife had a barren womb. That's a huge problem in light of what God tells Abraham in chapter in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And yet his wife, Sarah, is, has a barren womb. She's childless, which we are told specifically at the end of Genesis 11. That's not by accident. That's going to play a really big role in Abraham's life going forward. But at this point in Abraham's life, he's 75 years old. His wife is in her 60s. So by that point, I'm sure if you were them, like them, you pretty well concluded it ain't going to happen. But as Abraham and Sarah will learn later, listen, her barrenness was simply a, a platform for God to show his power in seemingly impossible situations. So Abraham's in the wrong land, obstacle number one. His wife is barren, obstacle number two. And then the third obstacle is Abraham has no descendant. 
He has no son. So how can Abraham become the father of this great nation if he has no son? And more importantly, how can God bless all the nations of the earth through his son, Abraham's son, if he doesn't have a son? Now to us, that seems like a rather huge problem. But with God, as we're going to see, all things are possible as he fulfills his plan of salvation through Abraham. So these three obstacles, they would certainly challenge Abraham's faith in God. And yet these challenges were necessary in order to prepare Abraham to become the father of God's chosen people. Abraham didn't know it at the time. But his greatest days were yet to come as he trusted God and stepped out in faith one day at a time. So, recap. What do we have here at this point in time in the life of Abraham? Here's Abraham, a moon-worshipping pagan idolater who is transformed by the grace of God. And it's no different than you or you or me. Think about it. What's the difference between believers who put their faith and trust and hope in Christ and, and unbelievers who put their hope in this world? The difference is simply the grace of God intervening in our hearts and us responding to it. And so like Abraham, we are simply sinners saved from the fires of judgment by the grace of God. And what a difference that makes in our lives, both now and for eternity. And in the context of Genesis 11, in its reference to the the rebellious, wicked, scattered nations, what a difference God's grace makes in all the peoples of the world. Listen, the story of Abraham here proves that there's no one Absolutely no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. Listen, if God, if if, if he can save a a moon-worshipping pagan like Abraham, then God can save anyone, including me and including you. Listen, God has a plan to save a people His glory. And that plan, do you realize, through Abraham is extended to you through his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world. Most of us here can quote that verse. That verse is found where? John 3.16. We can quote that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me tell you, that verse didn't just originate there in John 3.16. That originated in the plan of God before the foundations of the earth. That was God's heart all along, is to save a people for himself. For God so loved humanity. For God so loved you. And because God so loved the world, he called Abraham to follow him, and he calls you to follow him. And listen to me, the fact that you are even here this morning is proof that God is even now intervening in your life and calling you to follow him. The call of God. The call that God gave Abraham. It's not really changed all that much since he called Abraham 4,000 years ago. What God demanded of Abraham is very much like what Jesus demands of all of us if we're going to follow Jesus Christ. Listen, listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. Is there in your notes, it says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And so like Abraham, 
you might think of yourself, you might, might still be, if we can say it this way, in Ur of the Chaldeans. That is, you, you have not yet come to know God in saving faith through his son, Jesus Christ. But now, now you have heard. In fact, right now you have heard. You have heard of the one true living God. And even today, at this moment, he is calling you. He's calling you to trust him and put your faith in him and him alone. In the person of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and his resurrection for your salvation. And I would ask, have you, have you heard that call? Yes, because you're here now. But have you responded to that call? To follow him. Have, has there been a point in your life where you have humbled yourself? You've recognized, I, I'm no different than Abraham. I'm, I'm a pagan idol worshiper. We may not worship the moon god, but we worship other gods. We worship the pleasures and things in of this world, we put our priorities in the things of this world, and those things become our God. And are we willing to, to forsake those things in order to respond to the gracious call of God that begins with salvation? Has there been a point in your life where you've done that? That you can look back on and say, yes, that's when I, I humbled myself, that's when I recognized my place as a sinner and cried out to God in repentance of my faith and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And, and many times we do that through expression to God in what we call prayer. We cry out to God in that way. Listen, if you can't point to at least oh, something in your life in the past, and even now, what are you believing? Are you believe? Do you believe? Not just with your head, but with your heart that then translates into your life following God, a life of faith. Not perfectly. We're going to see here, Abraham's going to fail miserably. But he keeps trusting. He keeps trusting. Man, if you haven't, man, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let, let, let us help you. Let us walk you through that. And pray with you. But more than that, you cry out. Because it has to be your response. This call was personal for Abraham. Abraham's the one that had to respond. His father couldn't respond for him. He had to respond. Have you done that? With your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for the truth of your word to us here in Genesis. And we are humbled that you would save us from our sins through your son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you for your faithfulness to accomplish your plan of salvation among all the peoples of the world. So even now, would you grant us ears to, to hear your call and to respond in faith to trust your promises in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.